Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action is brought to you by Northern Trust Front Office Solutions. Northern Trust's platform empowers asset owners with better operations and tech support to allow investment teams and CIOs to meet their middle and front office needs. Their blend of technology and service has resonated and generated a lot of interest from listeners of the show. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is deeply ingrained in the culture at Northern Trust, and a special thanks to them for sponsoring this important miniseries. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Shortly after I finished the interviews for the Sustainable Investing miniseries, Black Lives Matter took center stage in the United States. I asked around and discovered that the subject is uncomfortable for many to discuss, and that while many CIOs are interested in being part of the solution, most are not familiar with the underlying nature of the problem or the actions to take as a result. This miniseries, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action, is a four-part introduction to the issues at hand. We'll explore what's been going on for a long time and hear what some are doing about it. It's my small part in contributing to fostering the conversation. My guest on the fourth and final episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action is Joel Wittenberg, the Chief Investment Officer and Vice President of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where he's managed the foundation's $8 billion in assets since 2009. The Kellogg Foundation is guided by the belief that all children should have an equal opportunity to thrive. 
In accordance with that mission, in 2007, its board committed to be an effective anti-racist organization that promotes racial equity. Over the ensuing 13 years, the organization has become a leader in applying research and taking effective action. Our conversation touches on Joel's background in the fixed income markets and the application of duration and convexity to allocating capital. We then turn to his work at the foundation fostering racial equity. We discuss the importance of open conversations about race, Kellogg's expanding equity program for majority-owned managers, emerging manager allocations, and impact investments. Lastly, Joel shares his plans to broaden the expanding equity program to allocators and managers in the coming years. Please enjoy my conversation with Joel Wittenberg in the fourth and final episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness and Action. Joel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Ted. It's great to be here. Well, why don't we start with just your background and how you worked your way into being in the seat you're in today. I got into the financial markets really right out of college. I was a retail stockbroker in 1984 when selling municipal bonds, the long-term yields had just come below 10% and everybody said, I want 10% of my muni bonds. So I was not the most successful broker, but I learned an awful lot about intuitively understanding that if rates went down and all these bonds got called, people were going to lose a lot of money. And that was kind of my introduction into this world. I pretty quickly left that job, went to work at a life insurance company in the Detroit area called the Alexander Hamilton Life Insurance Company, which I cannot say without singing. I have to really focus on not singing that these days. <laughs> and at Alexander Hamilton, I ended up very quickly on the bond desk and investing in investment grade bonds. I just became obsessed with the market, focus on the asset liability structure of an insurance company and how we had to think about that. And then I bought the Fabozzi Fixed Income Securities Handbook, and that literally became my Bible. When you look through it and see all the yellow and the writing on it, I read it time and time again. And that was really where I got my love for the bond market. I was getting an MBA at night at the University of Michigan as well. But that really was what launched me on this track of my career because understanding duration, understanding optionality and therefore convexity has been really what has kind of gotten me to where I am today. When I graduated from University of Michigan, I went to the Dow Chemical Company where I sat on the desk. We issued debt and then hedged it. That was in the early 90s. And we created, before it had been created by JP Morgan, we created a value at risk model. So we always knew what our exposures were in our derivatives book. We always knew what would happen if the market moved a certain way. And it was just a great, again, next step for me in the risk management side. Went to the pension area at Dow Chemical for a couple of years, and then eventually went to a company called Armstrong World Industries in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I got out of Michigan for the first time in my life. At Armstrong, I was running the entire pension fund, and that's really where I got my value investing philosophy. I also ended up just the right guy in the right spot because we announced two acquisitions within a week, one in Europe, one in the U.S. Our treasurer became controller, our assistant treasurer quit, and I stepped in and said, I can do the debt deals. And next thing I knew, I was the treasurer of the company. So after a bit of time there, I went to the Kellogg company where I was 
treasurer. Kelly was in the process of buying Keebler. We took the balance sheet from a AAA rating down to a high B rating, which is really an interesting and fun experience. And then after nine years at Kellogg Company, being treasurer, running the pension fund on my own, the Kellogg Foundation chief investment officer position opened up. The foundation is a, Mr. Kellogg created a situation where he wanted the foundation to be completely separate from the company, although there's board overlap. So when the CEO of Kellogg Company came and said, I found you the greatest job in the world, I applied for it. And I moved two blocks away, and I've been at the Kellogg Foundation for the past 11 years. It's been a great place to be. I had the ability to kind of build the function really from the ground up and do it my way, do it my team's way. And it's just been the gift that keeps giving to me. How did your initial experiences in the bond market influence how you thought about that ground-up development of the foundation? It's really important. Everything to me comes back to duration. And I can't calculate the duration of a stock, but what I know is that a a growth stock has a very long duration. And so as we look at any asset at the foundation, any asset class, any private equity fund, any manager, my mind and now my team's mind goes to the duration of that. It creates some really interesting dynamics because on one hand, a VC investment is going to be our longest duration asset. But if you think about a, for example, a shorter duration asset, a distressed bond fund allocation, your duration risk is a lot lower, your cash flow is a lot higher, and your return over the distressed cycles, because you're going to go through many there, may end up being similar or better than the return on the VC investment. And so you really have to focus on this aspect of duration. The convexity piece is really the key to it, though, when you combine them together. Because what we look for in a private equity investment, for example, is really more in the growth side is how do they get to a mid-teens type return? And where does that positive convexity come from to get to a higher return? More importantly, where does the negative convexity affect us? How do we know that we're managing the downside in this? And so it all comes back to a bond market mindset that really uh, drives how I think about the entire balance sheet that I've got to manage here. So when you think about using that duration and convexity lens for other asset classes, do you find or where do you find there are areas where you end up at a different thought process or assessment of maybe an asset class or a manager than someone who has maybe more of a traditional just risk and return framework? The thing for me is, I think it's coming from that corporate side, is that I'm thinking of the entire balance sheet here. We've got a 5% payout, and that is my liability stream that I've got to manage to. And I don't, obviously, I'm not fully hedging that, but I am aware of my liability stream and my asset stream. And that's what I think makes me different than that. I do think that my value background combined with my focus on on convexity and trying to create some non-normal distributions does push us towards things with a little more cash flow. And I think that's what's different. When I look at our real estate portfolio, it's done really well. And I think it's been because of that focus on cash flow and what it sort of means because the higher cash flow assets have done well, coming out of the GFC at least. 
And so take a quick step back and talk about the foundation's assets. I know there's a fair amount of Kellogg stock sitting there. Broadly, what does the structure of the investing portfolio look like? So we actually look, if you take aside the Kellogg stock, the Kellogg stock is about half of our assets, a little bit over half right now. And if you put that to the side, we then have the diversified portfolio, which is the other half of the assets. So our portfolio really looks like a lot of our peers. The only difference is we do need a little bit more liquidity. And so we probably have a little bit less of private equity. What we're trying to achieve here, though, is growing that diversified portfolio and getting you know to diversify away through growth. That's really the goal, and that's what makes it different. So it's not a family office at all. There's no family involved with the foundation at all. But it's got that family office allocation because of the concentrated position. But at the end of the day, every peer of mine has a balance sheet issue, whether it's a university that may have cash flows coming in one day, not coming in the next day, commitments that they've made. I think everybody has to, we all have our own balance sheet we have to deal with. Curious, just before we dive into a lot of the special sauce we're going to be talking about, does that fixed income market lens also color how you might think about manager selection a little bit differently than someone who maybe came at it from an equity lens? I think so. My questions as a bond guy, I think are different than questions of somebody who comes out of an equity side. It's interesting because most of my team comes from the equity side. One of the things that I, when I hire, I want to have people who have owned portfolios, who've had to live with their decisions and of my three directors on the diversified asset side, that's where they come from. And so their questions as more value-oriented investors tend to be those bottom-up questions to managers. My questions are really around portfolio construction, about risk management, and things that I think of as the bond ALM guy that I am. Where have you seen a manager, maybe an example of a manager, kind of go awry by not thinking about that type of duration, convexity-driven risk management lens? I think newer managers and more value-oriented managers who do things from a bottom-up perspective, that's where it tends to go off. I can't think of a specific situation that went that way. What I've seen is that when we've gone in and done our due diligence on managers, especially ones like in hedge funds that have a more sophisticated leverage-driven portfolio, if I'm not seeing a really complete risk management system that understands the asset and the liability side of the balance sheet, it's just a non-starter. There was one time years ago we went into a, uh, a manager, and it was a very systematized hedge fund, and I was standing with the trader. It was a bond fund, so I was just really having a good time there with him. And then in the bottom corner of his spreadsheet, there were some numbers moving around and because it was a risk management spreadsheet. And I said, what, what are those numbers? He said, well, I'm allowed to have some separate trades on the side. And so I started asking questions about those. Those weren't within the risk management guidelines. They were just his trades. And uh, that was the last time I was at that office. <laughs> One other question about that. You know, you'd mentioned being familiar with VAR calculations in the early days. And you know, I think on the one hand, we understand what VAR means in a normal environment. And on the other hand, it seems like everything important happens on the tails. I'm curious, how have you integrated that into your thought process? 
Yeah, VAR is not the be-all, end-all for sure. And so we've got a lot of risk management tools that we utilize. We will buy out-of-the-money puts that have so little delta in them that you can't really count them as part of your equity allocation. But when we get into the craziness of the markets and correlations go to one, the VAR model is helping you on the one and two standard deviation moves, and that's it. We have all sorts of risk. We've got a risk management model that helps us with that. Why don't we circle to the original purpose of the foundation and where all this started? The Kellogg Foundation started in 1930. Mr. Kellogg created this incredible structure. So we have two structures. One is called the foundation where the philanthropy is done. And then we have the trust where the investments are done. And that allows each entity, which has such a unique position to manage themselves specifically for that need. And the trust obviously puts money into the foundation, and that's how we do our philanthropy. The foundation was created itself, like I said, in 1930 by the serial entrepreneur W.K. Kellogg. And for us in this business, we have to point out serials with a C here. And his focus right from day one was on children. And we know that children live in families, families live in communities. And so what we believe is that for our families and our children to thrive, they need to be in communities that provide for them equitable places of opportunity for everybody. And obviously right now, as we've learned this year in particular, too many communities aren't providing those pathways, those pathways of opportunity for the families and our children. And so what we do is we're dedicated to changing that and building a great future for all children. The one thing that goes through everything we do is everything about our DNA is racial equity, diversity and inclusion. And that is a key part of who we are and what we do. At what point in time did the racial equity component on the foundation side cross the divide into how you were thinking about the investing on the trust side? For me, it was on day one. The thing about Kellogg is we are a culture of diversity and inclusion. It's not talk. It requires hours and hours and offsites and focusing on race and the discussion about race and where do we come from. So it's not the type of thing you can fake, right? You've got to believe in this and you've got to be a part of it. So it happens to people very quickly. The example of me, I'm a white man. I came into the foundation at 49 years old. Obviously, I knew there was a problem. I didn't know what the problem, how to think about it, how to deal with it. And I quickly became a part of the foundation, working with the people I work with, which I can talk to you about who we are, which really is an important part of this, and saw that as a white man at 50 years old who had had the benefits of white privilege for my whole career, I had a role in racial equity. And that's the part that was really empowering me. As I started to hire for this function, because like I said, I built it from the bottom up, I was able to bring that lens, my new lens, which is obviously still, you know, after 11 years, I'm still learning a lot about myself, but I was able to bring that lens and bring in the foundation's focus on diversity in order to hire a totally diverse staff. So here we are, we're in the West side of Michigan, which is hard to recruit for, for anybody. And I have built a team that is two-thirds uh, racially and ethnically diverse. 
if we include gender, where we're 75%, we don't include gender when we think about this. But it was a mindset that I had, and it was a mindset that the foundation gave me that allowed me to drive my team and get the diversity right from the start. What were the early insights that you got exposed to when you first arrived that you might not have been aware of before you were at the foundation? The racial equity work is really, really interesting. As a corporate executive at two companies, I really tried to make a workplace that was welcoming, that was comfortable for everybody, gender, race. And it was really a priority for me. And I had a fairly diverse group. The one thing I never did was had the conversation with those diverse employees of mine about where they came from, about what their work career was like, about what their experiences were. And it's amazing to try to create a workspace where people will be successful and you've never actually had that conversation with people about what they would like in that workplace. Never crossed my mind. And at Kellogg, it allowed me to have that conversation to talk to people that not even just my team, but my peers and the people I was hiring. And what I hope to create was a workplace where people are confident they will be given responsibilities and promoted based on their experience, based on their expertise, and not based on them coming in as a person of color where they may have prejudgment going on. And you can't really get to that mental thought until you've actually talked to the people about that. The conversations we have at Kellogg around race are incredible conversations. They're the most growth as a person you could ever have. And that's what allows you to create a diverse workforce. What did you find in those conversations that changed the way you went about building your team and working with the colleagues around you? We all have conscious and more importantly, unconscious biases. And we're all products of how we grew up. We come from these backgrounds that have created who we are and being aware of your unconscious biases. And you're never fully aware of them because they're unconscious, <laughs> but being aware of your unconscious biases allows you to have the conversation. At Kellogg, again, I can have the conversation and ask people uncomfortable questions and they know I'm coming from a good spot and they will help me understand things. What's really interesting and makes it so incredible and fun about it is people can ask me questions. I'm Jewish and there's a lot of questions that come at me about what I've had to deal with with anti-Semitism and where I come from. And that's that, that conversation. And when you understand those unconscious biases, when you understand what we call microaggressions, what is happening when you make a comment, when you make a statement, and somebody then calls you out on that and says, you know, here's what I heard when you said that. That's that piece that helps, that got me to where I am. As you've been able to work in and foster this inclusive environment within Kellogg, you also have this pool of capital that has the potential to influence more than you know just a subset of the team you have in place. How did you think about the diversity and inclusion in your investing process? We're focused on several different things there. We want 
to be a part of what the foundation's doing and a part of the mission. And so we were able to do that. There's three different ways we're doing this. So the first one is through a program that we call Expanding Equity that I'll describe. The second is we've got a fund of diverse emerging managers. And then thirdly is our impact investment portfolio. But Expanding Equity is really the interesting one. So let me kind of give the backstory to it. In 2007, the Kellogg Foundation made an announcement that we were going to be an anti-racist organization. Now, we had been in racial equity work going all the way back to the 1940s. We made our first grants in the 1940s that were made for the purpose of dismantling the crippling effects of racism. In the 1990s, we got to a spot where we said, okay, we're going to really focus in on this racial equity journey. And then in 2007, we made this bold announcement that we're going to review everything we do, grant making, hiring, promotion, investing, everything we do with a racial equity lens on it. In 2007, our staff was 24% racially and ethnically diverse. Today, we're 45% racially and ethnically diverse, and we're still growing. If you include gender, again, we're 70%. Now, we don't include gender when we talk about this, and obviously we are very (laughs) pro-gender hiring, but when you separate out gender and talk about gender alone, quite often in the investment world, it ends up being about white women. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we're bringing in everybody, and so that's why we don't focus on gender. So over the years, we've had just informal conversations with our investment managers about the work and about how we do things. And at Kellogg, we're not about shaming, we're not about guilt, we're not about quotas. We're all about the conversation because we believe this is something you have to do from your heart. And in a conversation with one of our managers about three years ago, it was the CEO of a real estate firm, and he said he really wants to get this right. And it was really important to him the same way it was important to us. And as we kept having these conversations with other managers, we realized there's a real need here for our work because people are seeing our journey from 2007 as their journey. Just because we're a foundation doesn't make us holier than everybody else. We're going through the same difficulties and growing pains on DNI that everybody else is going through. We just started them a lot earlier. So what we did was we had two focus group sessions, one of them in New York, one in San Francisco, and we invited our largest managers and our most successful managers. And it was an afternoon where we said we had to have a top five person and the HR person from these firms. And we had about between the two locations, we had about $2 trillion of assets represented there. It was a really powerful group of people. And we sat for the afternoon, we talked about our journey, we talked about unconscious bias, we brought in some professors to talk about that, we talked about microaggressions, and then the conversation just opened up and people talked about what was working for them, what wasn't working for them, what their frustrations were. It was an incredible afternoon, mostly private equity firms. And at the end, we said, what can we do? How can we help you? How can we take this to the next step? And they said, we need more than talk. We need the roadmap. We need the actions that will get us to have a truly diverse organization. So this started three years ago at the end of 2017. We went back and we spent a lot of time on this. One of our directors, Carlos Rangel, is really the driver of this. 
And we put together a program now called Expanding Equity. It is our first cohort. It's being done this year. And this is five firms. These are, again, some of the largest firms. You know the names. Some of the names allow us, they allow us to use the names KKR, Varde, and Beacon Investments, real estate firm in Boston. And what we've done is we're working with a consultant and we're using data from the McKinsey uh, Women of the Workforce study. That study is broken down by race as well. And what we've done is we built a workbook for them. And each firm is taking that workbook, focusing on what their needs are, and then going through a process of how are they going to change their organizations and drive their organizations to hiring better, and then most importantly, promoting better and giving opportunities. We have four in-person meetings. Now, the, the first one was in person. Now, the second one was over Zoom. We're hoping to resume them at some point. And again, it's these top five people, the HR people, a few others that are doing this. And we're seeing some really incredible results. It's just getting started, but we're also starting to see others hearing about it, coming to us, talking about it. You mentioned the difference between hiring and then you said more important, promoting people at the racially diverse people. What does the research show in where those bottlenecks and challenges come along the way in someone's career path? What the Women of the Workforce study showed us was that in the financial services industry, we're doing a great job of hiring diverse people. But as the funnel goes up, those diverse people fall out. And what ends up being promoted is a very small number of those diverse people and a very large number of the white men. And so these firms are out there doing the right thing. They're doing the right hiring, but they need the processes that will help people to be successful and to be promoted, most importantly. So one of the most obvious examples, once we had the Women of the Workforce study, an obvious example was this idea of the onlys. When you have a department that has one diverse person in it, that person is more likely to not be successful than if they were to have other peers and other diverse people in that department. And this onlys issue is a huge issue and it's one of the things where, as we talked about it with the firms, you could see people's eyes light up, their pens go to the paper. And it's one of the things that people know they need to focus on now. People didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. And that's just one of the examples of the types of things that we're seeing. Are there other small actionable examples as well of some of that unconscious bias? There's the hiring process. If I, as a white man, am going into an interview and I'm interviewing with generally a bunch of white men, maybe a white woman occasionally, my thought process is, am I part of this team? How do I contribute to the team? How do I see myself fitting into the team? A person of color going into that same interview is wondering, am I being judged on information that is not correct? Will I be excluded? All those things that I interviewing people don't think of, but the interview process has to be inclusive as well. So as I brought in people to the foundation to interview, I made sure that they were also interviewing with people of color at the foundation, people who could help them understand what it's like to work at the Kellogg Foundation. And to be honest with you, the hiring is of diverse people becomes very easy when they see their path to success and that they see it in the long term. Those are the types of things we have identified. The whole notion of this expanding equity, a lot of times when people 
think of DNI, they think of placing capital, allocating capital to minority-owned firms, and it focuses more on the people in the top. It strikes me that this expanding equity has more to do with the existing organizations and promoting the practices within them. How did you think about the balance of the existing organizations that may be majority owned by a white male compared to the fostering of minority owned firms? The way we think about this is this is changing Wall Street from the inside out versus hiring minority owned firms is changing it from the outside in. And can I give you some of the facts around firms? There is very strong research around how firms, the traditionally white male owned firms, can create success through diversity. And it's really not rocket science. Companies with the ability to bring in and promote those people of diverse background and ethnicities are, of course, going to have better conversations. They're going to have different perspectives and different results. I've seen it with my team. There's a a PE firm called Illumin Capital that worked with Stanford's Spark area, and they did a study and that found that professional investors tended to rate more favorably all-white teams of fund managers over diverse teams with black managers, even when they had comparable performance. So that's the unconscious bias. One of the things we see is that of the $71 trillion of assets under management, this number is unbelievable. Only 1.3% are from diverse-owned firms. 3.9% of mutual funds are diverse-owned, 8.9% of hedge funds, and 1.2% of real estate funds. So the opportunity of, again, from the inside out is there. And then how do these firms do? There's a McKinsey study in 2015, and it showed that companies in the top quartile for racial diversity of leadership were 35% more likely to have financial returns above their national industry medians. This is a broad index. So that study, that's indicating the leadership ranks are more diverse. Is there anything about the firms as a whole? So there was another one, a Harvard Business Review study that showed that diverse companies experience increased innovation and it results in 19% higher revenue, 2.3 times cash flow per employee more. So the facts are there about this. It's pretty clear that diversity drives financial performance as well as just better behaviors. One of the things that's crucial, and the reason I think that these really successful firms have gotten on board is as they look out to their futures, they look out to the sustainability of their firms, they see that our country is going to be more than 50% diverse in 2050. Our workforce in 2050 will be more than 50% diverse. If you're not addressing these things today, if you're just a bunch of white men, that firm ain't going to make it to 2050. You're creating a headwind that just has to be dealt with. And it takes the really the best firms out there to get to that. So Joel, in the process of putting this together, how did you come up with the action steps to take to promote this sort of diversity and inclusion in the organization? So we started with our success at the Kellogg Foundation and our experience from 2007 to the current. And then we really broke it into 23 work streams that are areas that these firms can look at and use and identify which ones are the most important ones to them. And they fall within four categories. So the first one is what we call attract. This is attracting and hiring the new employees of color into the firm. The second one is belong. And this is 
setting up processes that ensure that all employees, regardless of their racial identity, feel respected and are able to be successful. And this is where our roles as white men comes into this. Then the third work stream is regarding promotions. And there what we're focused on is ensuring that employees of color have the same opportunities for advancement as the white employees. And then last, the fourth work stream is influencing, catalyzing racial equity in the financial services ecosystem as a whole and being able to talk about it. That's part of it, but it's also these firms that are in expanding equity are keeping track of their progress on this, and they're going to be turning in their statistics to the database over the years as they go forward to measure how well they're doing it. And so measurement is a key part of this for these firms. And again, the reason that this is so action-oriented is because we got the top people in on this, right? This isn't being driven by the HR department. This is being driven by the CEOs who know they've got to get this right. And that's why they're taking these actions. What are some of your other favorite examples of those 23 work streams? Well, there's the only example that I talked about, but it's really things such as having processes to ensure that there's equal access to development opportunities, making sure that the managers of these people are trained and making sure that these diverse people are not working for the wrong managers. There are managers who buy into this and there are people who don't buy into this. And you've got to set them up to be in those positions. So there's a lot in here about training. There's a lot in here about having the conversations at the business. And there's a lot about accountability. The accountability part, I can't stress enough. And as we talked to Henry Kravis about this, this was his key driver is he sees the accountability as how he's going to bring this into his organization. The one thing I just want to add is there's the social aspects of this, making sure that the social side is being covered as well, that people are included, that there is plenty of opportunity to socialize. That's really a part of getting to know people from different backgrounds, which we just don't spend the time doing. So the first piece is this expanding equity. And then the second you said, is this outside in with emerging managers? How have you approached that? We worked with a firm called Progress Capital. And we started hiring diverse-owned firms about 10 years ago. The idea was to bring in these diverse-owned firms that are emerging. We're taking the risk of newer starting-up firms. We were using track records from prior mandates. The real goal of this was, again, for investment performance, to identify that next great manager. We have identified three managers with four mandates that we were able to bring into full-blown allocations, and the program went pretty well. Progress recently closed in June, so we're in the process of rethinking this now. The one thing that we have to really be careful of is some people see this as kind of the kids' table, and that's not obviously our goal, but that's one of the downsides of this type of a program. It's a very tricky area, but it's something we wanted to experiment with. In that emerging manager allocation, knowing that there's startup risk in an industry where odds are long of success, knowing that there's just more risk than just the underlying investments, how do you think about sizing something like that when you really want it to be successful? So it's a small allocation to each manager for us. And frankly, we're not the largest investor out there, so it's not even their largest allocation as well. But it is an important allocation, and it gives them 
the ability to put our name in their pitch book. We're a reference for them. And quite often we will set this up as a separate account so that if there's a problem, we can jump in and take it. But it was mostly stock and bonds allocations and pretty straightforward, a couple of hedge funds as well. And for those that were, however you wanted to find success, but you did ultimately make a larger, more core allocation to the manager, how did you determine that they were ready for that? It was really just getting to know them. We always will include these firms in any search that we're doing. And if they stand out, that's where they move forward. One was a very specialized bank. It's a, a, a firm that does just small bank, long-only equities. The other was a hedge fund that now has private equity fund. We invested in the hedge fund, and now we're investors in the private equity fund. They're outstanding firms. It was pretty obvious. and wasn't hard to make that call. Now, the third leg you've talked about, and we've talked separately about, is this impact investing piece. I know you've gone about this in a way you feel very strongly about, and why don't you talk about that program? So again, in 2007, it was a pretty busy year for our board of directors now that I think of it. They allocated $100 million to impact investing. And so we've been in this thing for 13 years. I think of us as one of the originals. We started by putting some people with from the mission side, from the programming side of the, the aisle. They were the ones who brought the idea to our board, got the okay for it. And they made our initial investments and they made some terrific investments into companies, individual companies, structures, and a couple of funds that were just mission bullseyes. They were right on for our mission. And as I came in in 2009 and started looking at some of the historical transactions, what I saw was great mission execution and improvements we could make on the investment side because they weren't investors. We had consultants, but the consultants were focused on the mission aspect of it. And so the function, as it evolved, ended up reporting to me, and I tried to turn it into an investment team. And we got very few transactions done in that, uh, in that three years. And what we now have done is we have a director, her name is Cynthia Muller. She has been in this business for longer than our 13 years, and we have this incredible balance today of mission and investments. And we're starting to really see the benefit of that. Cynthia's work has been focused not so much on the mission is there as a focus, but the investment side is just as important now. And so you know, for the last three years, our U.S. portfolio had a return of 9%. And so we're starting to see some real benefits come out of this thing where this ties into the work is it started off with a lot of investments into things like education, healthy eating for children, things like that. What Cynthia has taken us to now is a bigger focus on racial equity through finding those entrepreneurs who are people of color rather than sort of the concepts of education and things like that. And so by trying to create wealth in that community, that's really where our emphasis is. And by doing that, we have more focus on the investment piece of it, because these are real entrepreneurs who really have experience with investments and histories in investing. So is there a good example of one of those impact investments? Yeah. So there's the Impact America Fund. It's led by Keisha Cash. And Impact America invests in large underserved markets, and they're trying to expand opportunities in communities of color where entrepreneurs have been overlooked and undervalued by traditional investors. 
So the firms and founders with who they're investing with are creating products for those specific communities where the alternative investors really weren't serving them and they didn't exist at all. So because of this, Impact America is really increasing market transparencies and efficiencies. They're lowering costs for consumers, helping to increase incomes in those communities and mobility for those workers. 95% of their investments are with companies that have a woman or a person of color at the helm. So that's one of our better examples. What's an example of one of the investments you made that you'd say crossed that divide that in the past would have just been mission and not had the investment focus and now kind of fits squarely in between? We've talked about thinking, we've talked about publicly, the Revolution Foods is the one that I'm thinking of. Revolution Foods is a firm that provides healthy meals to children in schools. They're a just a regular service provider, but they're serving real food to the children. This isn't the old from the 80s, the ketchup is a vegetable. And Revolution Foods has created a financial model. It's a woman-owned business, and they've created a financial model that's working. They've created a model that's working with helping children to be educated better. And so we're seeing the financial returns. And this is how we think about our impact investments. You have, first of all, you have a financial return. We've got to earn a financial return. If we don't earn a financial return, this movement isn't going to work. Then you add to that the impact return. Are these children having a better education and how will that lead to a higher living standard when they get older? And then thirdly is, what is that ecosystem benefit coming out? And the ecosystem is, turns out Revolution Foods is hiring people who previously had been hourly workers. Now they come into Rev Foods and they are they're salaried, they have vacation, they have health care, and they have more stable families. And so the, that's how we think about the return on the impact investment. And it's a big return when you think of it that way. How do you think about scaling up the size of both the emerging manager bucket and the impact bucket over time? The impact side is where we will eventually go there. We're still learning our lessons. And the whole impact investment industry is learning its lessons it's going to take time. It's not going to be quick. What we're seeing in impact investing is that other impact investors aren't talking about their investment returns, which tells me that the investment returns have not been good. And so this industry, in order to make it, has got to start showing investment returns. And it's doing what I believe we're doing well, which is having not just the focus on impact, but having that focus on the investment side as well. And it's a different investment due diligence process, but it's you've got to get to that piece of it. So once that comes together, I think then you're going to really start to scale up and you're going to start to see some of the best managers coming towards that. But it's going to take time. One of the questions that comes up that I imagine you've wrestled with is really what comes to the definitions of diversity. You said racial diversity, but then there's also this ethnic piece I had conversations with people that does this include people, you know, there's African-Americans, but what about Indian-Americans or Asian-Americans? And What are the decisions that you've had to go through and conclusions you've reached about that? We're very broad with this. Our focus is on the underserved communities in the U.S., which is mostly it's African-American, Latino, Native American, but there's all sorts of other people that fall within this. If you think about this, the Native American side doesn't even come up in diversity. At the Kellogg Foundation, it does come up. For us, it does come up. But 
we define racial equity as a, it's an aspirational pursuit insisting that all people, regardless of their racial or ethnic group identification, skin color, or physical traits, will have equal opportunity to experience well-being in our just society. And so it's very inclusive for us, and it's very, very broad for us. But when we start to outline how are we thinking about our impact or the emerging managers' portfolios, it is really on, focused on those groups. And we've got managers, of, we've got women-owned firms, African-American-owned firms, Latino-owned firms, Asian-owned firms, and it's really centered in the U.S. You know, I know even just in this week, we've had a situation come up where there was another foundation that was interested in learning from what you've been doing. How are you going about kind of making the experience base that you've had available to other organizations, both investment managers and other pools of capital that want to follow your lead? We're spending a lot of time talking to our peers about expanding equity. What we're in the process of doing is bringing those peers into this so that we can influence more of the managers to join expanding equity. And what we're starting to see is that our peers are saying, well, we're having some of the same issues with our hiring, but they want to make a difference. And we're talking to them about the conversation. And then what we're hoping to do is bring them into talking to their managers. They may have firms that we don't know and bringing them in because we're going to start thinking about future cohorts of expanding equity going out into next year. We started with the five this year, but we're starting to get a lot of energy on it into the future. And frankly, it's calls like this that are getting the message out there about this. And if you look down five or 10 years down the road, even within your organization and portfolio, where do you want to get that you're not yet to today? I would say we probably have one of the more diverse portfolios from the ownership of the companies and the management of the assets. We're certainly not where we want to be yet. I honestly believe that because diverse people, diverse investors don't get hired, there's some really great investors out there who have that ability. I was speaking to somebody in San Francisco, and he was a 45-year-old guy working at Cisco, wanted to leave to work at a, a VC firm, but nobody wants to hire a 45-year-old guy. And so instead, he took his money and started investing in himself in VC, and it started identifying these VC opportunities that were diverse people, people that can't get funding from the traditional VC firms out in the Bay. And needless to say, he's an early investor. I think it was Zoom, uh, one of those, Zoom or Slack, I can't remember. But by going in one of those entrepreneurs was a 35-year-old person who couldn't get investors from the VC world. Another was a woman-owned firm that he's now invested in. There's this incredible opportunity, and we're trying to take advantage of that to drive returns and our racial equity work. All right, Joel, I want to turn to a couple of fun closing questions, and then uh, we'll <laughs> let you go. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So my son and I, a few years ago, started going to the Kentucky Derby every year. And we are now Kentucky Derby obsessed. We study the horses. We place our bets. We lose lots of money. And we have the greatest time every year at the Kentucky Derby. And now my daughter goes with us as well. And it's really, it's an all-day thing. And it's the most fun I could ever have. And never thought I'd be a horse person, but here I am. <laughs> 
What's your most important daily habit? So for me, what's important is just sticking to my habits. I get up in the morning, I exercise, I have a process of going through the journal and the FT. And if I don't do those, literally my whole day is off to the wrong start. So it's just stick to that process, see the news, and you can face the day is what I think of it. So then when your day does get thrown off, what's your biggest pet peeve? Talk without action. It just drives me crazy and it drives my team crazy. And we really focus on, we say it all the time, what are the actionable discussions we should be having? So we are action-oriented people. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? I drive myself crazy with our investments. I have a process. Whenever we do a trade, we have an ETF portfolio. We make tilts in our portfolio. I go back about six months if I can and try to look at the trades after six months and come up with what are the behavioral traps I may have fallen into. And those pet peeves are the behavioral traps. What's the one that keeps coming up for you? Well, it's just being emotional. It's just being emotional and following a trend. Taking money off the table when something is up, not having fully researched it tends to come up a lot with me. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I had a bad hire years ago and it took me too long to own it and it took me too long to deal with it. And it wasn't fair to the person. It wasn't fair to the rest of the team. And that was a heck of a tough lesson for me to learn, that it really affected the entire team way too much, more than it should have. And why do you think you did it? Avoiding a difficult conversation. It's classic Joel Wittenberg. (laughs) What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So I come from a family. My mother was a single mother for about half my childhood. And I watched her work two jobs and have an incredible work ethic. My stepfather also came into this family and worked unbelievably hard. He was the guy who, if he had to stay all night at work, he just stayed all night at work and got it done. And I literally would not be here today if I didn't have that upbringing. Great. Well, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I was a little late. I didn't start my work in this business in any of the big cities. And I really didn't start traveling internationally until I was 32. That was my first European trip. And boy, I wish I would have traveled when I was younger. (laughs) That was my, that's what I missed out. And that's what I tell my kids. And my kids are traveling everywhere. So not this year, but I'm telling them, get out, see the world, because there's going to be a point at which you can't. And the lesson was, in this business, I have seen the entire world, and it has been the part I love the most about this business. Joel, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks very much, Ted. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.